Hello and welcome to the Ulster Rugby Roundup. For the first time ever, I haven't written an introduction and I am feeling pressure this week. I haven't actually told you this in our little uh, pre-record chat, boys, but as part of my uh, teaching up at the University of Ulster, I am this week marking my class's podcasts. So I feel like if any of them are listening, they're going to be expecting my podcast to be very, very good whenever I'm critiquing theirs. So the pressure is on us today to make this sound really, really good. Not that it always doesn't sound good, especially when you're on, Richard, joining me today. Ah, thank you. Good to be back with you and uh, good to see you. You've been very elusive and uh, we've, we've missed you. Ah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. <laughs> well, the listeners didn't seem to. It's still a bee in my bonnet that every time Jonathan hosts, it gets a, a block of listeners going on to Twitter saying how good he was at hosting it. But here we That's are. I encourage them. <laughs> just sliding into people's DMs being like it'll be really funny if uh, you tell Gareth that uh, the podcast better without him <laughs> back this week as always of course Jonathan Bradley out of the host chair this week apologies to everyone uh, who, who doesn't like me Gareth Hanna, on the podcast but I am here on the increasingly rare occasion to talk about of course Ulster's big win in Clermont we'll look ahead also to this Friday's game against Northampton Saints and um, some other things as well but first of all Richard we'll address this one to you our first question comes in from Ian Frizzell is that result the win over Clermont enough to get you Richard to ditch your harlequins and reaffirm your allegiance to your mother province this has been an ongoing theme of this season where you've been increasingly aligning yourself towards harlequins and I'm glad to see that it has been noticed I have to say that my allegiance still remains with uh, my my home province of Ulster. Once an Ulster man, always an Ulster man. And and the allegiance to Harlequins is, is, is just a little bit because my son's involved in the Harlequins DPP programme. So, but I have to say, wasn't the Quinn's result against Cast absolutely fantastic? First team <laughs> to win there in over in, in over a year, you know. So um, it can't be too bad. And Harlequins are the English Premiership champions as well. So uh, they're doing okay. I was keeping a close eye on them as well because you need to look at who. Ulster could potentially be playing down the line. But yes, Ulster's result. They cake the last time we were there. That's right, they did. Yes, They just they disappeared with like a full chocolate cake. And another time that I was there, there was a snowstorm and some guy just brought me a cup of tea and it was the happiest that I've ever been. <laughs> so and basically, we're now go- demanding chocolate cake from Ulster <laughs> to uh, return our allegiance. Essentially, like... <laughs> I haven't even got fed by Ulster in like two years because of COVID <laughs> restrictions. So. so it obviously was a massive result, especially coming off the back of that the, that Ospreys disappointment, which we we obviously weren't here. Apologies again to talk about last week, but coming off the back of that, Jonathan, were you surprised uh, at, at what happened at the weekend? Yeah, I think anytime a team goes away to Claremont in the pool stage of Europe and wins. You're surprised. I know Monster uh, Monster did it last year, but I think their record was 32 out of their last 34 at home in the pool stage. I know they had lost um, some knockout games to Toulouse. It's a massive achievement for a team that I think has been, now been well documented over the course of the week. Hadn't won in France for going back almost six years. And when they had done that, it was against an Oyana team that were not great, got relegated and was actually... Not a good result for Ulster because they needed the bonus point and didn't get the bonus point, even though they did win. So I was surprised. Obviously, there was a rather large degree of COVID disruption for um, Claremont. The reports in France being that um, 
even though it was only one player tested positive through some players being close contacts, through some players being unvaccinated, they lost quite a few of their starting back line, really. But looking at that game where I thought it was going to be won and lost was up front. And I think, although there were some uh, adventures in the scrum, maybe in the second half, like I think Ulster's forwards, really, as much as the backs took all the headlines and as much as there were some brilliant performances in the backs, the way that the forwards were able to match the physicality of Claremont and the way that they were able to man- manipulate Claremont's forwards around the pitch was really the key the key to the win there. Richard, did you see it coming? I mean, obviously there had been the win in Leinster recently, which was a big result and Ulster <laughs> did show a little bit of form, but but after Ospreys, I mean, I did. I always see it coming. I'm always fairly positive. I think I was telling Adam last week that I thought they were going to win um, and he said he didn't think they were going to win, just threw him under the bus there. Did you see it coming? I think I have to admit, I thought Ulster maybe if they had got a losing bonus point out there would have been a would have been a good result, you know. Um, but again, I think if you look back at the Leinster game the night before when you saw the teams named, you kind of went, you know what? If Ulster can ever get an opportunity to beat Leinster in Dublin, it was going to be that game, and and it happened. Um, and again, Claremont, whenever the things came out about the COVID and whatnot, you kind of went, this is a good opportunity for them and they've got a really good side going and you forget about the Ospreys game because it was a different team that played Ospreys from the team that beat Leinster. It was a very similar team that beat Leinster that played against Claremont and that's the consistency you want to see and I think the important thing with this win, Ulster have done the hardest thing now. They've won away in France in the first in their first game and it tees them up nicely for the way this competition is and the way with the COVID that's coming in I mean we saw the Bristol Scarlets game had to be postponed cancelled five points to the Bears so the crucial thing in this competition is you need to finish in the top four yes top eight will qualify you but if you finish in the top four by scrambling two home wins now and maybe even another away win that sets up a potential for a home quarter final and maybe even a home semi-final. And that is going to be so important going forwards. And Ulster have shown now the consistent form that they needed because I think as Jonathan and I talked about last year, you look at all their fixtures and their results, it was those key games that they couldn't perform. And Ulster have now shown, not once, but twice, that they can perform at the top level against the top sides. And it's the resiliency, I think, in both of those games as well. It's been probably the most impressive aspect of it because Claremont came back from 16-0 down and were up by a point. Leinster came back after Ulster had battered them and made it 10, 10 each late on. That, to me, was the biggest problem in Ulster season last year. Whenever the pendulum swung the other way and they lost their momentum, they couldn't get it back. You saw it most notably in the, uh, in the Leicester semi-final, but also, for me, crucially, you know, they started really well in that Leinster home game that they needed to win. Obviously, the red card changed things, but they started really well and then lost their way. They started really well against Leicester, lost their way. People sort of forget now that they really could have beat Toulouse at home. Sort of Colby and Dupont, obviously being the two best players on the pitch, swung the game back in Toulouse's favour, but also had a chance to come back late on in that game. The Gloucester game, you know, we've poured over that enough. That was a game that they should have won. And it's just the management of those games and the key times to be able to accept the fact that the opposition is going to have large patches where they're the ones getting the upper hand. But to weather that and to come out the other side and shift the momentum back in your favour, I think that's the real difference that we've seen well, in two of the last three weeks. We were talking about that Leicester semi-final and I asked Dan about it. I mean, six months ago, Ulster had one foot in a European final 
40 minutes took it away from them. And the Leinster game, mentally, I think the victory over Leinster away has, you kind of went, yeah, okay, Ulster have learned from this. But I think Saturday reinforced that again, that the resilience is there and that will take them forward. As regards some players people wanted to talk about, Chief on the list, perhaps unsurprisingly, was uh, was James Hume. Big Jim asks, was James the missing ingredient against the Ospreys? Beat Leinster and Claremont away with him playing and he seemed to generate a lot of the clean line breaks. Steve McCormick says it was a brilliant performance, but Hume was simply the best. No, I would agree with that. Like, obviously, the French love uh, a goal-kicking nine. Uh, so it was no surprise to see Ulster's petty general uh, given the star of the match. But I thought Hume was the best player on the pitch on the on the day. If you talk about swings and momentum, it was James Hume's break. Yeah, It got them up the field before uh, the Nick Timoney try. And that really was at the time when you were like, Ulster needs something. They need somebody, for lack of a better phrase, to take this by the scruff of the neck and shift things back in their favour. And for me, that was the James Hume break. I think, and I was sort of thinking about this last week as well. Looks like I'm trying to be smart after the fact now, but but no, I was thinking about this last week. I genuinely think that James Hume has been Ulster's best player since lockdown, like over the course of the, whatever that is now, the, the whole 14-month period, 15-month period, I think he's been their best player. Ulster are really, really fortunate in a lot of ways that, you know, they got to that Pro 14 final in September 2020. And since then, you know, it's not been the impact of their NIQs. It's not been big signings. It's not been our reliance on your Irish internationals coming in and coming out. Like Nick Timoney and James Hume have just transformed themselves over this time period to being among the very, very handful of most important players in this team. And I think we have to mention Stuart McCluskey too. I mean, when you look at the stats for Ulster, James Hume and Stuart McCluskey were one and two, one and two, one and two the whole way through. And there's maybe an argument, you know, they say about the, the combinations in the Irish squad. Well, there's an Ulster combination that are playing some sublime rugby at the moment and uh, maybe deserve their slot come Six Nations time if they can maintain their form. That is Mark's question. Do you think James, and you've now introduced Stuart to, to that discussion as well, do you think they can force their way into the starting lineup in time for the Six Nations? If they continue to perform the way they performed in those two big games, they're putting their hands up. Um, yeah, I mean, Leinster were very impressive in which was nearly a full strength. Leinster said it was out against Bath. Now, Bath have had their problems this year and I think that was 10 defeats in a row. For them, but Leinster were sublime in the way they went about their business, um, and it's, it'll be hard. But it's I think if, if James and Stuart are playing the way they are playing at the moment, and I mean the focus that James Hume had in his face when he took the pitch on on Saturday was was he was there, he was there to say I'm here. By the way, I'm in France. I'm here to show you what I can do, and he went out and he did it and backed himself 100. So yes, I do think the two boys can have their hands very very held high come every Six Nations time. As settled as that Ireland squad was starting to look, Jonathan, like this was the challenge that Andy Farrell sent out to those Ulster players. Obviously, there there is still that opportunity to, to force a rethink. If you're looking at Hume as an example, like the question mentioned, that he didn't play against Osprey, so all he's done since is get man of the match in the RDS and come very, very close to getting man of the match in Claremont, two of the toughest places to go in European rugby. So he can't have done much more. Like obviously Gary Ringos has signed new central contract there um, during the week. And Robbie Henshaw last week, I think was voted Ireland's player of the year for, um, for last season. So 
maybe along with back row, I think you're looking at it as being that's the most competitive place to be. Because if you say, right, Henshaw was Ireland's player of the year, so say he's in, and you've got some combination of Ringrose, Aki, Hume, Farrell, McCluskey. I go, those are five really, really good players. But if you look at the way that Hume has progressed his game, like I say, since since lockdown, because I think he's a, he's actually really improved his defense this year. Like his line breaks and his footwork and stuff are um, an awful lot of what people are talking about. But I think he's got an awful lot better defensively as well. Like we saw the uh, almost another intercept uh, try, like the one against uh, Lancer, just with a good read, even though it was um, it was called back because Claremont were were playing with advantage. And then where Ulster almost scored their first try was you know his um, break to the outside which is another thing that he's got really really good at just that footwork to get on the outside shoulder when you try and tackle him one-on-one it was the same thing that we saw against uh, the way that he did Jordan Larmer for the last try and then I think uh, that was the one where Marcus Ray got held up over the line but I think if he continues this run through through the Interpros and into the rest of the European games I think it is definitely a conversation that is going to be had because you know the Six Nations isn't like the Autumn Internationals. It's not a case of um, Andy Farrell is going to be able to run out the same team. People are going to get injured. And bizarrely, just with the way the fixtures fall, there is an opportunity to experiment more in the Six Nations than there was last autumn. So it's amazing we've got this far, really, without mentioning his name. Dwayne Vermeulen made his long-awaited Ulster debut, of course. JW wants to know what your thoughts were on his performance. Only one training session along with the squad. He's certainly going to have a bigger impact in the future, JW says. So um, for a start, Richard, what did you make of him? Yeah, um, I think his presence was... uh was felt. I did question the fact that he was brought in given the short time that he had to train with the guys and whatnot. And I think that was one of the reasons why maybe they did go for the 6-2 split because they didn't know how he was going to actually maybe go for the full time or how much time they decided to give him. But um, no, I mean, he he was very impressive in the lineout. He was impressive in the breakdown. We're going to see an awful lot more from him. He came into a game when James Hume and the back line were pretty impressive. And uh, Took the light away from him a wee bit, you know, but um, I would say he will get a hell of a welcome this Friday night uh, at Kingspan Stadium. There's no doubt about that. Absolutely. Jonathan, good to see him finally in there. Did he show show some signs of what you were expecting? Yeah, I think if you look at like Ulster's um, mall defence in that first half, especially whenever he was um, whenever he was there, like bear in mind, this is a, a Claremont side whose hooker had scored a hat-trick the week before. So they're a good mauling outfit and Ulster took that away from them. And that's an area of the game that's not particularly sexy, like, but it's um, a part of it where he has really forged his reputation. Like we heard uh, Roddy Grant a few weeks ago saying that for him, he is one of the very, very best defensive maulers in the world. And like like you say, Gareth, it's not going to get a, you know, it's it's not going to be gift up and uh, shared on social media in the same way as like a James Hume break. But especially for me, just the way that you looked at that game, the way that you looked at how the teams matched up, Ulster denying Claremont's forwards the platform was always going to be key to the game. And I think he really helped him do that. As part of a overall good back row performance, because Nick Timoney was very good. And I thought Marcus Ray probably quite quietly, but got through an awful lot of work on what's let's not forget, was a really big occasion for him because, you know, we're not that far detached from sitting here talking about, you know, where is Marcus Ray? Why is he not uh, Why is he not featuring more? And on the basis of a couple of cameos, well, sorry, on the basis of playing really well in that A game and then 
a couple of cameos on the bench for the senior side, he ends up starting against Claremont in the start of Master of Michelin. Yeah. I, think if, I think if you look at Dwayne's stats from the weekend too, I think James Hume had 12 carries and Dwayne Vermeulen had 12 carries as well, but we're not really talking <laughs> about that as much as we've talked about James. And I think you're right, Jonathan, the back row, Marcus Ray had a good solid game. Sean Reddy comes off the bench and brings the impact that he does. And there's Greg Jones again, and we talked about him previously. I mean, I, I'm always talking about him. I've always liked him. But, you know, even as we volleyball pass back to Michael Lurie at that time made a valuable contribution and it's it's good to see that you have that sort of strength and depth available for those big sort of games well you bring us on to the back row in general uh, and Nick Timoney interesting to read on O'Connor's comments after the game and that as good as Timoney was in the latter half of last season the feeling in the squad is that he's gone up another level this season and in particular I suppose we, we should talk about that try if Claremont had scored that try, the start of this podcast would have been very different because there would have been nothing else to talk about, only that try. What happened? Why did it happen? And should it have happened? I think if you, well, if you listen or look at it from the old perspective, the only reason that it shouldn't have happened was Dan McFarland said he thought Laurie should have actually held yeah. on to the ball. Rather than, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's rather exactly. than the office. Now, the way that John Canoe was kicking, this was never going to be important because he was always going to make that conversion. But is it not an argument that it should have been a penalty try and therefore seven points rather than five anyway? Well, that's what I thought like, as well. I mean, it, it was automatically it was automatically yeah. going to be a penalty try no matter what. Because <laughs> I, like, I don't think it was really mentioned, but like, surely either way it was a try because either Nick Timoney scored before the whistle was blown or a Claremont player has knocked a scoring pass to the ground before also we're just going to have a run in under the post. So to me, it wasn't as... Now, I do my best to learn a little bit of French on Geolingo uh, throughout the week. And if you go on the Claremont uh, Twitter feed, they're not viewing this in the same way. But um, <laughs> the, the whistle had gone long before the ball was put down, hadn't it? It sounded like it had. But if you actually it's, look yeah. at the, like if you look at the replay, the replay that they were going off, it does look quite clear that Nick Timoney is sliding for the line and then Wayne Barnes starts to lift the whistle to his mouth. So I don't know. That like, was I don't a strange understand thing. what the disconnect was between the uh, that was a strange the thing, the pictures or something. Unless he, did, did he have the whistle like in his mouth and then was putting his hand up to take the whistle out? Do you know what I mean? Was he just standing with the whistle in his mouth and his hands no, were near? I think. Thinking, I don't know. I need to look back at it now. You see, you see, one of the things that I mean, one of the things that referees are told is to is not to have your whistle in your mouth all the time. You have your whistle down to your hand because by the time you bring it up something kind of happens so you've got those couple of seconds but as Jonathan rightly says if you watch the video with the sound off Wayne Barnes's hand only goes up to his mouth when Nick Timoney is sliding across the line but when you listen to the sound you hear the whistle before Nick Timoney slides across the line now I'm not too sure was there a break in the audio on the video transmission but either way I think it was going to be a try as Jonathan rightly said it's either going to be a try because Nick Timoney has crossed the line before the whistle was blown, or it's a penalty try because the Claremont forward knocked it down. And yes, the Claremont Twitter feed would probably have been like an Ulster feed had it been reversed. <laughs> so in conclusion, nothing to see here. All good. I didn't I think, like, the I one didn't thing, think it was a try at the time. No, neither because... did I. But then, and then I went, oh, that's a penalty try. And then they had the conversation. The one thing that I said to the boys was, there's your go, guys. You never stop until you actually hear the whistle. But when was the whistle blown? <laughs> Don't even stop after the whistle. Keep going. No, you keep on going. Just keep on trucking. Like in real time, I thought it was a knock on. And then watching the replay, I thought it was a penalty try. And then 
the least likely outcome I thought was the try being awarded. But I think if you're going off the pictures, then I think that it would have been out like given that it was so central, it wasn't an issue anyway, but it should have been a penalty try. A penalty try, sorry, would have been more beneficial for Ulster under normal circumstances because then you don't have the risk of the conversion. But um, I don't think people have always been a massive fan of Wayne Barnes in the past, but I do think he has reached a point now where he is one of, if not the best, referee going, and he's obviously vastly experienced. So I, th- like, I thought he had a, a pretty good game, all in all. Just I thought he managed it very well. And what I like about Wayne Barnes is he talks the process through and everybody is completely clear as to how he has reached the decision he has reached. Did the Claremont player deliberately put the ball to the ground, though, and was the pass going forward? Well, I think there there has to be some sort of sanction if you're not in a realistic position to catch the ball, which I don't think he yeah. was going at it. No, he wasn't. Yeah, one-handed like that. Well, we did see uh, Vianney for... Uh, wasn't it Vianney? Yeah, for uh, for Stade Francais with the uh, the one-handed... <laughs> the one-handed hauling in of the, uh, of the big kick downfield from Connor, but I don't think he was... Uh, yeah, I don't think this was a position where we were going to see that that hold in. So, so was the was Lowry's pass going forward then? Because it certainly immediately the Claremont players felt it was ah backwards out of the hands, Garth. <laughs> yeah, backwards. It looked. It was definitely. It was definitely going backwards. He, he heard Timoney on his shoulder going, "Mike, Mike, I'm here," and Lowry then offloads the ball backwards, and the Claremont player taps it down deliberately forwards. Okay, well, maybe we should have got somebody from Claremont on to add some balance to to that. But uh, there you go. I'm sure there's Claremont yeah, no, no. you can listen to. Uh, yeah, get John on. Yeah. <laughs> Robert Paul oh, dear. went off injured in the first half. The tackle didn't look overly uh, great. The way Balakoon went into the ground didn't look great. His face, as it was happening, didn't look overly promising. Do we know much more at this stage? Was there anything said? There wasn't anything cited for the tackle or anything, was there? No, well, it was given as the yellow card because the mitigation being that it was another Claremont player that had helped force him to the ground. So I would have thought. So if two, you said it's fine. Yeah, the, yeah, that, that that should be two yellow cards surely rather than one. But um, it's, it's a hard one. I mean, the second player, I can't remember who it was. It, it was him that ended up forcing Balakun's shoulder into the ground. I actually think, and I'm probably going to get slated for this on Twitter. I think it was just a penalty, and that was enough. I think it was just a rugby collision. I know his, his legs came up a bit, but did his ankles actually go over the horizontal? I'm, I would need to look at it properly again, but. I didn't think it was a red card offence. Um, I think it was the second player. You know, let's, let's be honest, the two guys were big, hefty forwards, I think, and uh, Balakun's a little bit of a light guy, and um, that probably contributed a wee bit to it. And we're waiting, basically, to find out what the prognosis is at this stage. That's pretty much us up to date with that, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so there was yeah. a... He had a scan yesterday, so yesterday being Monday, and... Um... Fingers crossed. Yeah, McFarland wasn't too hopeful. Put it like that. Not much no, to Certainly not about <laughs> this week, but you know, we've it's a huge run. All fixtures. Rob probably would have got a break for at least one, possibly two of those festive derbies anyway. But um, especially when you think about coming back into Europe, and also the fact that Addison and Stockdale are out at the minute as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think Mike Lowry has been really good. Everybody involved with this podcast loves Mike Lowry, but that's probably Ulster's first choice back three, really. Um, all out injured at the minute. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed for uh, Robert yeah. and for the uh, the prognosis on that injury. Donald's customary tactical question was it a tactic not to give the backs any ball against Leinster and Ospreys to trick Claremont into thinking it wouldn't against them, 
or are Ulster just a big match team these days? I don't think John O'Gibbs was going to be taken in by any of that at all, to be totally honest, given his Ulster connections. Um, I think as Dan, Dan Soper explained it maybe yesterday, Ulster went in with a particular game plan for the Leinster game, which was a narrow type game. As far as the Ospreys game goes, well, we saw what happened there. And it was a different team that Ulster put out. Um, yes, they will play to the same game plan, that, irrespective of what players are on the pitch. But um, I think Ulster, Dan Soper, pre-Heineken Cup, talked about the analysts and how much work they bring to the the table, picking up on teams what certain things to do. And I think it's it's good. The coaching staff have sat down with the analysts and said, right, we need to do this, we need to do that against Leinster. We, this is what Claremont do, and we need to be aware of that. And I think uh, it's been good game management yeah. from Ulster, everybody involved in Ulster. James Bradley wants to know, does winning against Leinster and Claremont and losing against Connacht and Ospreys confirm the theory that Ulster don't perform well when they're favourites? Obviously, a couple of months ago now, before the Autumn Internationals, we played you that Dan McFarland audio where he sort of went into his ponderings about this and, and why Ulster couldn't win when their favourites. Are we now seeing the uh, the fruits of that, Jonathan, or is that a bit oversimplified? Well, it's interesting, guys, because it was you that actually made the point whenever Dan said that, that, you know, our Ulster are not favourites most of the time. <laughs> and I'm very insightful. Well, I've always thought so, mate. Um, <laughs> and conversely, at that point, pre-Leinster, Ulster probably hadn't won too many games as the underdogs. Yeah. I don't think Ulster were actually favourites going away to up. Going away to the Ospreys. Yeah, I think the Bookies had Ospreys down as a home win. Yeah, thank oh, you. Sure I, thought, that? I thought Ulster were like six point favourites in that. I think you're right. I think Ospreys were slight favourites. Yeah, I think the Bookies, certainly the Bookies had them as slight favourites. And I must admit, um, I, I had thought that the Ospreys, when they were playing Leinster and Ospreys back to back, I said, there's two really, really tricky fixtures. Mm. Um, because the Ospreys had been going reasonably well up to that point, you know. But I suppose the point of the question still stands and yeah. that Ulster seem over the last four games, if you take that as your uh, as your sample, Ulster have a better chance of beating brilliant teams than they do of beating not quite so brilliant teams. So they're in but for I a stuff on this weekend then? as well. So it's like an element of this and an element of the idea of this was born out of the idea that Ulster had been playing down to the occasion, if that makes sense. So they weren't they weren't doing what Leinster sometimes do and sticking 50 points on inferior teams in the ERC. They were sort of going along fairly well results-wise without playing particularly well. And I think that was part of the idea. They raised themselves to the occasion or bring themselves down to the occasion as it may be for some of the less glamorous ERC ties. But sort of like I said at the start of the podcast, the big thing for me about those two wins is... The idea of being able to come out the other side when momentum starts going against you. And because that was the big thing the season before, especially, especially in that um, Leicester game when Ulster were essentially favourites for not just that game, but Silverware. And I think that was probably part of Dan McFarland's frustration at the time as well. And talking about them being favourites. But the reality is that with these four games, we are talking about a very small sample size. Yeah. You know? This is Dan McFarland's fourth season, but coincidentally, because of what he said after the Claremont game, it's or sorry, the Connacht game has really looked like you know he's looked quite prescient in a lot of ways yeah. because um, since then they've won the two games that you expect them to lose and lost the game that you expect them to win. But um, I think we'll continue to learn an awful lot about this Ulster side in those terms because they're going to be favourites against Northampton 
and they need to get the job done. The reality of the situation is if you get the job done on Friday, then you knock Northampton out yeah, before um, you go to Northampton. Yeah, it'll be interesting to look at that one come the weekend. Nathan Cassidy wants to know what do Ulster need to do to become consistent in their performances? That's something that Daniel Soper is talking about. It was talking about in yesterday's press conference, Richard. And certainly from his quotes, it sounds like it's the, the real pressing issue for the Ulster coaching staff at the minute. And a very difficult one to really get to the bottom of as well. I think they have, I mean, if you take the Leinster game and the Claremont game together, Ulster have shown that they can perform well against quality opposition. They scrambled a bit in the first few rounds of the URC. Um, I think the other thing is too, they haven't been, they haven't actually put out their, what they would deem as being their best. Hasn't, Dan McFarland hasn't been able to pick, to pick his best 23. Now you could argue that does any club able to pick their best 23 week in, week out? But I think that that comes down to it to a degree. Um, so against the Ospreys, was it, was it like five or seven changes? I can't remember. And that's going to have an impact to a degree. And you're not bringing in, I mean, you haven't seen Ian Henderson this year. You haven't seen Ian Madigan. You haven't seen Jordy Murphy. Jacob Stockdale hasn't had a lot of rugby. So there's three, there's four players that you would say would be fairly high on that match day 23 list and I think that's where you get the consistency and and being able to pick the players that you need for your big games that perform but then the guys that come in behind like the Ospreys game are able to go out and and deliver the job because Ospreys came back at Ulster and unlike the week before and unlike on Saturday they couldn't shut the door that time and I think it comes down to who the personnel are and how they're developing themselves and you've got a lot of young guys who are coming through that Ulster setup at the moment who and it's great to see them getting that opportunity and I think that's one of the things that it'll, it'll be it'll be who your match day 23 is for the game that they're playing yeah no and while you have those young guys then I suppose it's only fair to expect there to be some level of inconsistency while they're effectively still learning their trade don't know second question this week because we weren't on last week, so we can forgive him a second question, and it's an interesting one. How well, he asks, did John Kearney put himself in the French shop window on Saturday? Jonathan, we talked about this at the start of the season. A big talking point of this season is John Kearney's contract, and there's still no news forthcoming as to what is happening with John Kearney's contract, and if he's not remaining at Ulster, the smart money is that he may end up in France. It was a good performance, if, if, and we're not saying... He is, because we don't know. But if you're John Cooney and you're trying to impress French clubs. Yeah, I would say uh, the price went up a little bit. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> we talked about the value in French rugby of a nine. He can kick his goals. His kicking was flawless. I like. I might be misremembering this, but I don't remember him kicking too many penalties from inside his own half. It had another meter or two in it as well. That, uh, yeah. that kick. Yeah. Now, because Claremont obviously scored a penalty of their own to J.J. Hanrahan. Um, they sort of cancelled each other out. But at that time, the kick was one to push Ulster two scores ahead. So it felt like it was the winning of the game, but also to move Claremont out of losing bonus territory. So it was a massive, massive kick. He stepped up really confidently and nailed it. His kicking hadn't been great against uh, against Leinster, uh, certainly by his own standards. But I think I, I saw a thing where he'd um, made some sort of adjustment of moving moving an inch to the left or something. And it uh, obviously worked pretty well for him because uh, it was he seven, seven for seven. But we've talked about this before. Like if I was John Cooney and had been viewed 
in the Ireland setup the way that he has been viewed. Like I would certainly be looking at uh, looking at offers in France at his age to experience something different at the end of his career that isn't going to be afforded to two, not just too many players, but like too many too many people. It's, it would be an incredible opportunity, I think. You should add uh, up as a friend on Duolingo and see if he's learning French. That's <laughs> what we're right now. Just see how uh, see how his Duolingo XP is progressing, and if there's been a spike over the last couple of months. Yeah, Richard, what do you think? Do you think uh, we haven't talked about it in a while? But it, I'm sure it's still something the fans are thinking about. It's something I'm thinking about. Um, what what's happening with this contract? Um, and and what do you think is going to happen? Oh, it's a, such a difficult one, and I have to, I have to say, Jameson Gibson Park's playing quite well at the minute. Leinster and he, and he did well in the November Test Series and certainly improved from where he was this time last year. He's taken his learnings from Andy Farrell and, and has delivered them but John Cooney, there's absolutely no reason why he shouldn't be right in there with him and it's pretty obvious that he's not. his face doesn't fit. If you're an Irish player with a province, you want to play for your country and that opportunity is not going to come. So yes, why would you not look elsewhere and obviously the French is where the money is he may even go to Japan and the opportunities there for him perhaps I think it comes back I think we discussed this before Jonathan last year about what happens if Ulster want to keep him and John John Cooney wants to stay with Ulster that then makes it an interesting uh, situation Um, (laughs) I hate to mention it Ruan Pienaar I mean John Cooney totally reminded you of what Ruan Pienaar used to do for Ulster from inside his own half kick penalties readily over the over the posts so um, look if John Cooney was to go, you wouldn't um, you wouldn't deny him his opportunity. Yeah. I'd like him to stay because I think this Ulster side is going somewhere, and part of the reason for that is because they have John Cooney. Absolutely. Well, time will tell. Uh, Steve McCormick wants to switch the attention on to the other part of that halfback pairing. Billy Burns, he says, seems to be the only choice out half, even when sometimes he seems to be carrying an injury. Why is that? Is Ian Madigan still alive and kicking? And he says that pun is absolutely intended. Madigan had been out to start the season, but he's now back. And I think we've seen him as 24th man um, in the last couple of weeks as well. So so he is there. And it is, I suppose, a real departure from times of last season when you almost felt like they enjoyed having Madigan there um, to see games out. Now, he hasn't been on the bench Prior to Will Addison's injury, we saw Mike Lowry notionally as the backup 10, but he wasn't getting a hell of a lot of time there either. And this is against a backdrop where Billy probably isn't playing as well as he played last year. There's always been so much debate around Burns as a player generally, just because the legacy of him coming in, and there's always an awful lot of attention on a 10. But I think inarguably he had a very good season last year we saw that with um the ireland recognition now he didn't look like he was particularly close to getting in that ireland squad this time around whenever there was an injury sorry he wasn't even in there he wasn't in the original squad and then even when there was an injury it wasn't him that was called up it was jack carty he is playing fantastic rugby it has to be said we've talked about this with other players like if you fall out of the international reckoning in that way it would be natural that your confidence takes takes a bit of a dint and the way that Burns plays, he's a very high-risk, high-reward type of player. And playing with confidence, personally, I think would really affect that style of game. It was I, such I a critical... Think, I think he showed enough last year. And when he's playing well and when the team's on the front foot, I think he's definitely earned a chance to work through this. Because bear in mind, he, he played well against Leinster. Like, 
but as Stephen says, it's the it's the divvying up of the minutes that I think people probably find strange because he hasn't got a break. He's playing such a high percentage of the minutes of the games that he has started as well that it doesn't seem like they've really looked at another option. But yeah, um, Ulster v Edinburgh in Murrayfield at the end of April, which surely has to be the Ian Madigan fixture. Yeah. You know, That's if, if he's not back in the team by then, then what, what are we doing here? Because, you know, Mm-hmm. All, all he does is uh, come on and kick winning penalties in the last minute in Murrayfield. So. <laughs> yeah. Is this an area, do you think, Jonathan, that Ulster will be looking to recruit in? Or will we just see Michael Lowry gradually moving more and more into that role and assuming it on a full-time basis? Well, I think early on in this season, that was certainly what was being spoken about in terms of Lowry's position and him wanting to nail down a specific position. but. I thought he was really, really, really good on um, Saturday at fullback. We've seen him move back into fullback with Addison's injury. It's going to be interesting to see how that progresses if and when both of them are fit at the same time. It's worth noting that Madigan's contract has another year after this one as well. So he arrived on a one-year deal, which became a two-year deal. The implication, I suppose, being that um, all parties thought it was a success. With Burns's contract being up, I I just I I just don't see it to be honest. I think they'll uh, I think Burns will be somebody that they're looking to keep. And you know, you talk about you talk about even Laurie, like assuming the uh, jersey, like Burns isn't old by any means. Like um Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. But then from what I hear anyway, from what I think that we all hear, it's Lucid is really an area where they're looking to strengthen. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of retention, because that's almost, sorry, not almost as important, that's more important. So it's more important that they retain McCluskey and Hume, whose contracts are up at the end of the year, because you're not going to be able to go out and get better players than those two. No, no definitely. That are going to come, that you know, that are going to be sanctioned by the RFU. So you need to keep those two guys. McGrath, Jack McGrath and O'Sullivan are out of contract, which tallies into this idea that they are that loose head is an area where they're looking to strengthen mm. and then both your tight heads are out of contact as well in marty murr and tom o'till marty murr has continued to be as good as he has been since he arrived tom o'till's now coming back to the negotiating table as an irish international so there's a relatively big number of players who are probably going to be expecting pay rises i would guess on the basis of what they've done since they last signed contracts Absolutely. A lot of those players you mentioned there really are, are on the upward trajectory in their careers. So with that uh, comes an upward trajectory in, in pay, you would imagine. So, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, there's much more to look at rather than just John Cooney's contract over the next weeks and months. But more immediate is the game, of course, on Friday evening against Northampton. Richard, going into that one, one game down in the Champions Cup, you have already plotted out Ulster's route to the final. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's no point in going to France and winning the first game. Ulster have done the hardest thing in this competition that you can do, and that is win away and win away in France, apart from winning away in Ireland, which is the other thing, as the Irish provinces have shown. I think it's mm-hmm. fair to mention that the four proud provinces of Ireland all all sitting victorious and uh, looking good at this moment in time. Um, Ulster need to show their progress now. Um, there's no point in going as they did to Dublin and then going out the following week and losing their next game. They have to beat Northampton. Northampton, I thought, were very disappointing on Friday night. 
against, okay, they were playing Racing, one of the teams that you would uh, certainly would, would roll off the tongue if you were saying about who's potential champions at the end of this season. I think Ulster need a bonus point win on Friday night. I don't think Northampton will be as bad as they were last week. Um, and they have come in the past, many years ago, and uh, have upset Ulster. They'll want to be playing with a particular bit of pride. And the danger is, here's a wounded animal coming um, who are now playing and fighting to keep their dreams of Europe alive, having shown a lot of promise last year in the Premiership. And Ulster will need to be aware of that. But I think Ulster will be playing a consistent game because they'll have basically the same side um, and they will have their game plan and analysis done down. And uh, I would expect it to be a pre-Christmas cracker for Ulster and a solid victory. Yeah. Jonathan, it is hard to see anything else really than that, isn't it? And you were saying before we started recording that from all the concern when the draw was made, that now one game in, you're sort of thinking, I Ulster could win four games. Yeah, because obviously they could have got Northampton or Leicester and we sort of viewed them as um, not one and the same, but teams that were at a similar sort of level. And then this season you've seen, uh, you know, Leicester have gone out and won all their games. And I think you would have much rather had Stade Francais than Claremont, but you've already taken away the biggest threat about playing Claremont because you've gone to somewhere where nobody wins and won. I would like, I would echo Richard's caution there of, you know, this... Obviously, because it is Northampton, it will remind everybody of the time that Ulster went over to Franklin's Gardens in uh, 2013. Won. At that point, had won their first 13 games of the season. Everyone was like, oh, this is great. They're flying. And then they get done by uh, Northampton at home at a time when they very rarely lost at home in Europe. So, and even more recently, of course, we, you know, we talked about la- this time last year about debating whether Gloucester were particularly interested in this competition and they fielded a... Uh, a very unfamiliar team and still beat Ulster. Now, admittedly, that was that was at King's home, but uh, it would be a massive, massive disappointment for Ulster not to win this because it really would cement that idea of the inconsistency of the not being able to deal with the favourites tag because as much as Racing were good on Friday night, Northampton were thoroughly disappointing. Like, whenever the game starts and you're 30 seconds in before you're... Uh, Hooker's trying to chip over the top in his own 22. You're starting to think that something has gone particularly awry in the approach to this game. Like, like they've got some great players. Like, Lewis Ludlam, I thought was good on Friday night and is a very good player. By all accounts, Courtney Laws is going to come back in and we all know how good a player he is. Whenever you see Chris Boyd coming out in the media and talking about, you know, we have a few injuries, we might need to get boys right for the block of uh, premiership fixtures that are coming down the track you do start to be particularly curious about what we're going to see in terms of team selection. And I just think that Ulster, like we've said, are now in a position because if you beat Northampton and then your next game is away to Northampton, if you beat Northampton here, you've knocked them out. So you're playing a Northampton team. Admittedly, nobody's going to like to lose at home. We've seen that even from Ulster at times when they've been uh, when they've been out of contention, but you would be taking them out of the picture for your next game. And then you would have Claremont coming here and we've seen worse Ulster teams beat better French teams at home in this competition. So, like, like it or not, in terms of Ulster being favourites, like they could well be favourites for their next three games in this competition. That only spells bad news. Um, <laughs> so, as regards team availability and selection for Ulster, obviously we're not expecting Robert Balakoon to come in. Richard, do we know anything about Ian Henderson and... Um, 
is there a danger that obviously we've already talked about the the packed fixture list is there a danger that Ulster maybe roll the dice and make a make a too many changes will they make changes I don't think given the situation that they find themselves in now I don't think Ulster will want to take any chances I mean they'll want to go out and nail this nail this European game and they will they will pick their best available side to do that um obviously if Ian Henderson I understand it may be a hamstring issue. Um, I'm not 100% sure, but if he's available, yes, you would like to give him some game time. But if you look at the Ulster side, look at the Ulster side that played against Leinster and the side they played against Claremont. They won two big games without new key players that you would have expected to be on the team. So I don't think you want to tinker with it too much. Um, and Henderson will get an opportunity further down the line after Christmas. And I'm sure he will want to get some game time in the Interpros. And I'm sure Andy Farr will want to see him in the Interpros. But I don't think you take any risks this weekend. You go with what is your best available side and you go out and you take your four or you take your five points and put yourself in the best position possible at the end of the European break to be looking at progress down the line. In terms of your wing, I don't think you'll go for a 6-2 Select on the bench this weekend. I think you'll, you'll, you'll find there'll be three backs in there this time. Um, Craig Gilroy, Robert Little, two guys that can fit into the wing. That's who I would be expecting to come in. Uh, Marty Moore, if he's fit, definitely he would include him. But I don't see too many others, um, too many big changes. And you don't want to risk it. No. Definitely not. No, definitely not. Well, before we go, there is... Uh, the, the issue with the women's game continues to rumble on. Today, we have the news that the IRFU is going to have to explain its running of the women's game to the Republic of Ireland's government um, because a group of the 56 current and former women's players have written to Irish ministers uh, to express the, a lack of trust in the governing body. So the RFU have uh, have released a statement now as well to say they refute the overall tenor of the the letter. We have that story on the website. You can go on and, uh, and have a read of that and in today's paper as well to have a read as to what the letter said and what's going on. Interestingly, from, from our point of view, Ulster player and friend of the podcast, of course, Claire McLaughlin, did not sign the letter and, and she said that while she supports the overall aim of it, the letter that is, and the ultimate goal of improving women's rugby in Ireland, she couldn't with integrity sign her name after studying the letter. She struggled to replace her name for some of the we statements and therefore felt that she couldn't sign. She says those who seek to improve the landscape for current and future Ireland women's rugby players have her support. And she's confident that with the insight being offered from current and former players, we can see Irish rugby in a much better place. Jonathan, whatever way you slice it, there are players in agreement with the letter. As Clara said, players not in agreement with the letter. But the fact that any of this has happened is, uh, well, it's a fairly unsavoury place for the, the women's game to be in in Ireland right now. Well, it just lays bare what had really been hinted to and alluded to um, for a number of years, really just a complete schism between... Um, those that are running the game and those that are playing it. Uh, obviously, the backdrop of this is the sevens aspect to it. I suppose tellingly, there are no um, there are, there are no fully contacted sevens players who have signed the letter either. But this kind of civil war, if you like, has been brewing yeah. for a lot longer than the failure to qualify for the World Cup. I think the uh, speaking of tenor and tone, I suppose the tenor and tone of the uh, comments coming out after the failure to qualify for the World Cup and how the, it seems to essentially be that the uh, governing body were leaving the responsibility for that at the door of the players 
was probably a final straw for a lot of people. And that's that's why we've seen this letter. You know, I've seen it described as um, the nuclear option by Eddie O'Sullivan. But sometimes you need that. Sometimes if you want to affect change, that's what you need. And I think it's absolutely up to any player whether they did or didn't want to sign this letter. But the fact that so many of them did shows, I think, that they a lot of players have just felt that with their disillusionment at the way the game's been run, that they didn't have any other choice. And by the nature of these things, people are going to side with the players because people are always going to side with players over um, you know, people that they support rather than people that they, by and large, don't even see unless things are going wrong. So it's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out because... The letter was one thing, but I think the IRFU, who, like all governing bodies, but have always struck me as especially so in this instance, are very image conscious. And what happened yesterday was essentially a PR disaster from the original letter to the response to their response mm-hmm. uh, was all fairly disastrous. Well, certainly interesting times ahead. And um Whatever happens, we do hope that uh, the women's game will only go from strength to strength in, in Ireland. So that's pretty much us. It be noted that uh, the Irish women are playing in Belfast in the Six Nations this coming year. So the best, way, the best way to support the women's game is to go out and buy tickets for that game. Where you can go and see a women's game, go and do so. Absolutely. And uh, no better opportunity than, than that one coming up. So, yes, Richard, you're waving. Are you just saying goodbye? Is that just you waving no, goodbye to me? No, die hard. Christmas oh. movie. <laughs> we have to have the festive spirit in advance. Sorry. Come on now. Of course, of course, we still have to discuss Kieran Donaghy's question: Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Richard, you're very passionate about this. Come on. I am because I, I think it is a Christmas movie, and I'm going to tell you why. As young the BIA, the BIA, prepared. Yeah. prepared <laughs> it, it, it was filmed during holiday time. So it's Christmas. Takes place during an office party. Remember? Do you remember this? John McLean's wife is called Holly. Holly, Christmas. Okay. Um, it had Christmas music in it. Santa Claus made an appearance. Do you remember? Somebody had a somebody had a Christmas hat on them or a Santa hat on them when they were going down the escalator. It's all fairly tenuous here, Richard. It snows. It snows during the movie. It only happens in the winter time. Christmas is the winter time. Well, not if you're in Australia, but go on. There's a few good reasons why I think it's a Christmas movie. I'm not sold on it. I'm not sold on it. It's a movie <laughs> at Christmas time, and that's well, what is it like? What is the basis of any Christmas film then, if not just being a film set at Christmas? Well, it has to be about Christmas. Like the 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 very topic of the film has to be about Santa or about something to do with Christmas. Like this is just a movie that happens to happen at Christmas time. The actual plot of the movie isn't centered around Christmas. Depends on what your family's Christmas traditions are. (laughs) That's very true. Look, we can all agree it is uh, pales in comparison to the Muppets Christmas Carol, which is, of course, everybody (laughs) the best Christmas movie of all time. I watched that yesterday. Uh, Still unbelievable. Oh, fantastic. We have gone over time. So uh, you can let us know your views on the Die Hard situation and uh, on anything else to do with Ulster or otherwise at our Twitter account at your roundup. So yes, do get in touch. And that's us for this week from Richard Mulligan, Jonathan Bradley and myself, Gareth Hannah. Thank you very much for listening.